This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry, Episode 22, The USA Rising Power. And so we come to the USA rising hyperpower. The turn of the 19th century sees the USA join the great powers on the world stage. It's important for us to note that underlying the international politics of these times was the flow of maritime trade. Ocean as Avenue had been supplying the lifeblood of European North America from its birth. For colonists, overseas commerce did not merely make life comfortable, at least for some, it made it possible. The natural resources of the 13 colonies generated an aura of prosperity that exercised a magnetic impact on people abroad, luring them across the ocean to build new lives here. An extraordinary environment met them, offering both challenge and opportunity. The land was thinly populated with indigenous people, easy to push aside. It was fantastic in space, in quantity, and it was pristine, unlike well-worn oceanic Europe. Great untouched forests, lush meadows, and crystal streams provided ample raw materials to supply all that was wanted by the old world. These Raw materials could be readily exchanged for European processed goods, a classic swap made possible by using the Blue Water Sea as a medium. The sea also provided the livelihood of the colonies when land travel was slow, expensive, and uncomfortable. Brownwater coastal traffic was indispensable, an essential binder, economic, cultural, and ultimately political. This was not just a matter of moving bulk goods, but people and information. The proximity of the sea to most of the population made such movement possible. The 13 colonies were all coastal. This encouraged shipbuilding, largely in New England. By the time of the War of Independence, around 500 ships were sliding down American ways every year. With abundant, cheap timber, Yankees could build ships 30% more cheaply than the British and were producing one-third of Britain's merchant ships. Colonial America was also generating a shipping business, Shipping generates invisibles, services like insurance, bookkeeping, and legal matters, plus ancillary activities like uh, provisioning and warehousing. Thus, as American maritime industry begins to grow capital, merchant ship owners emerge as the nation's first millionaires. Fifty percent of the population was non-English, Yet the British and American economies were closely interrelated 
and the British influence was culturally dominant. As the world's primary oceanic city in the 18th century, London, a major shipbuilder, handled two-thirds of Britain's foreign trade. For the world market, it could also provide navigational instruments of all sorts, the sophisticated as well as the prosaic. Essential hardware, such as anchors, chain, canvas. British nails and sails were cheaper than American, but Americans held the great asset of inexpensive, fine timber in unlimited quantities. From 1790 to 1807, American trade boomed, generating capital for other enterprises. And maritime trade was the single most prosperous part of the economy. Shipbuilding and shipping grew dramatically, as did American seaport cities like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore. These were increasingly cosmopolitan places where seamen from all over the world walked the streets, chatted up the girls, and caroused in the bars and brothels. The American mariner shared his experiences with the locals, bringing to fellow Americans a global geographical perspective. The sailor enjoyed a wider world, tough as it was, than the man bent over his hoe tilling his fields or sitting on a stool in the barn milking his cows. In 40 years, Americans fought four wars, two against Britain, one undeclared against France, one against the Barbary states of North Africa. All were fought over oceanic issues based upon American dependence on overseas trade. The disruption of war causes capital to flow to other uses. Americans discover the merits of the machine, in at least one case through industrial espionage. Francis Lowell of Boston spent two years in Britain intensively studying textile machinery surreptitiously before bringing the designs home to recreate here. We can say that the economy begins a shift from wharf to waterfall, from sail to spindle. Water-powered cotton mills make Rhode Island and Massachusetts the seedbed of American industry. Yet the maritime continued to grow. The period 1815 to 1860 would be the golden age of America and the sea, dominated by New England, with New York City serving as its southern anchor. As the world entered the last decade of the age of sail, American merchant ships in number and in quality compared favorably with the British. As the century had progressed, clipper ships capture the imagination. Their emergence 
illustrates the slowness of the steam revolution. Fulton's steamboat, Claremont, chugged up the Hudson in 1807, but sail remained paramount. From 1833 to 1858, Americans built some 350 clipper ships, an era lasting only one generation. They broke all records for wind-propelled vessels. Speed, not capacity, was their prime feature, like that of the 20th century SST Concorde. But the clipper was not an invented type. It was evolutionary, not revolutionary. The clipper hull was designed for speed with its sharp bow, narrow stern, and rig designed for maximum canvas. The huge spread of sail demanded towering masts. These ships, expensive to build, required large crews, as well as extra sets of sail and spare masts. Hence, they carried high maintenance and operating costs. They were products of intuitive genius as well as precise measurement, mathematical calculation. That is, artistry as well as science, and craftsmanship, not mass production. Clippers generated great symbolic emotional power. Like the celebrated frigate USS Constitution, they were American and perceived as the finest. The clipper would provoke rhapsodic praise, both from historians, America's Parthenon, and contemporaries such as the sculptor Horatio Greeno, who writes, Mark the majestic form of her hull as she rushes through the water. Observe the graceful end of her body, the gentle transition from round to flat, the grasp of her keel, the leap of her bows, the symmetry and rich tracery of her spars and rigging, and those grand wind muscles, her sails. The clipper was identified with the China trade and the California gold rush. Americans did not take to tea as much as coffee, but tea supplied a lucrative commodity to sell to the British. London merchants would pay a premium price for the first crop of the season, thus encouraging sea captains to stretch their canvas in a highly competitive race. As steam propulsion increasingly takes hold, the clipper represents an obsolescent technology. But for Americans, ample cheap timber meant little initial interest in the iron hulls so suited to steam engines. Yet the strength and success of the American merchant marine until mid-19th century gave the nation prestige and position otherwise unwarranted by a largely undeveloped, although potentially vastly rich, country. Alexis de Tocqueville, in his influential Democracy in America, published in 1835, wrote, 
I cannot express my thoughts better than by saying that the Americans put something heroic into their way of trading. The American crosses the sea faster and sells his goods cheaper than any other trader in the world. What England is to Europe, so the U.S. will be in the other hemisphere. They are born to rule the seas as the Romans were to conquer the world. America's Civil War, 1861-1865, carried two major oceanic impacts for the nation. First was the great blow to overseas commerce. The merchant marine, seeking the shield of neutrality, fled from the flag. It would never regain its global status. Second was the war's impetus to technological change. It forced the Navy to switch from sail to steam and from wood to iron more rapidly than would otherwise have probably been the case. The Confederates were pioneers of necessity. Their economy was agricultural, and their limited industrial resources made them innovative. The most celebrated iron ships appeared at Hampton Roads in 1862 when the Monitor, an iron ship, fought the Confederate Merrimack, wooden with an iron skin, renamed the CSS Virginia. This was not only a combat between two iron ships, but also, as Bernard Brody points out, the first battle in world history between steam-powered iron warships. Other wartime innovations were the revolving gun turret, ram, and crude submersibles. Stationary mines called torpedoes proved to be the single most effective weapon. The Union held huge advantages, population, resources, industry, finance, the merchant marine, and the Navy. Their naval focus was primarily coastal operations, not blue water, using warships to shut down the economy of the South by means of blockade. This departed from the traditional American insistence on freedom of the seas. The war made the British greatly unhappy. They wanted to trade with both the North and the South. Economic interests made many Britons pro-South, especially the cotton manufacturers. This roused fierce Northern resentment, reviving a not always latent, intense dislike of Britain that many felt throughout the 19th century. General Winfield Scott, the aged, gouty hero of the Mexican War a generation earlier, was respected for his experience, but known for his pomposity. His nickname, Old Fuss and Feathers, tells us something. He was too old and too ill to participate in the war, but he conceived the Union strategy, the Anaconda plan, to squeeze and strangle the South 
by cutting off its access to the world ocean. The Confederates resorted to commerce raiding and blockade running, their objective being to bring out cotton and bring in munitions and medicines. But it was never enough. One example was a diminished supply of quinine that caused a flare-up of malaria. The blockade overall weakens the South and helps the North win the war. But Confederate raiders destroy more than 250 Federal ships, and that success would inspire students of warfare to replicate it. For example, the Germans in World War I. And for every single Federal vessel taken by commerce raiders, eight others were indirectly lost by transferred registry, avoiding the high insurance costs of a belligerent, both on the vessel and its cargo. This was a major step in killing the U.S. Merchant Marine in the 1850s, the world's second largest. After the war, Americans begin to look inward, departing from their earlier passion for the sea. Join us next time for episode 23 as we explore this American withdrawal from the seas. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buichade-Foray. Goodbye until next time. <laughs>